Jake. It's good for us to hear again those familiar words of reassurance. Most of us are familiar with that uh, psalm, and uh, sometimes it, it it takes a lot to make the un the the familiar unfamiliar. We can all almost treat it with contempt because we've heard it so often, but it's good for us to dig back into that psalm. We're going to be in Genesis chapter three today as we continue to talk about. Uh, transformation. And the reason why we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 today is we're talking about uh, transformation and habits for godliness. And the reason why, uh, so just to give you an update as to where I am on this, I'm doing, the, I'm doing okay with my commitments that I've made, I, but the big one is for me is this, uh, this physical one, I got to be honest with you, garbage tastes really good. And uh, things that are terrible for me, I have a really hard time not eating. And garbage is actually easier. Like, it's, like, things that are wise for me to eat and good for me to eat and long-term beneficial uh, take more work than just more shoving more garbage in my face. And uh, so that's the one that I'm struggling with uh, more than anything else. So, um, but what I'm trying to do here and what I'm talking about here is we're training ourselves for godliness. We're trying to get those parts of our lives that are that are broken, a little bit out of shape, a little bit, a little bit messed up, a little bit not where we want them to be, and we're trying to get all of our being pointed in the right direction because that is what God has called us to be. And last week, and, and the reason we need to do this is because we are not what we ought to be. And we understand that as human beings. I don't know a single human being that is like, no, this is exactly what humanity ought to be. As I look around. They look in the mirror and look around at the world. This is the way that it ought to be. If, if that were true, there wouldn't be a billion-dollar self-help industry at work in North America. If that were true, we wouldn't see all the, 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 the ads and the billboards that are telling you to go join a gym, the, the, the different conferences that you can go to to help you, help you find your way as a speaker, real estate agent, whatever you want to talk about. We wouldn't see all of those things that are that are telling us and reminding us and trying to help us be who we have been called to be. And this is true because we've lost our way. And we understand that as we talked about last week, that what we were made for in the beginning, before anything else, what human beings were created for was responsible labor making order out of chaos. That is what we, we were made for. In some way, you've got a portion of this, this reality in which we live where you take things that are chaotic or broken or, or scattered and you bring order. And then you were made for communion with other people. You were made to be in harmony with God, with yourself, with others, with the planet upon which we live. You were made for communion with other people. And that's what we made for. That's what we were made for. But we all know that that's not where we live, right? There's a dissatisfaction in all of us. There's a dissatisfaction with ourselves. There's a dissatisfaction with others. And we all know that we're capable of, rather than creating order that is helpful and safe for people to live in, that, that, that we can contribute to more chaos. And we know people that can only, and some of us ourselves, and, and we know other people that are only capable of living in chaos. That everything about the way that they operate within the world is to create more chaos because in the middle of the whirlwind is the only place where they feel comfortable. We understand that the world is like that. And we understand that communion is broken. 
that we do not have communion with ourselves and with other people as we ought to, that we don't trust each other, that we don't love each other, that we're not gracious with each other. And I'm not talking on the grand macro level of all of the ways that we interact with each other as nation states and as, and, and, and as political entities. I'm talking just in the basic levels of, 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 story, uh, of how we relate to each other. Because if this communion thing was right, we would not have the stories of addiction that we have in our society. We would not have the stories of overdose that we have in our society. We would not have the stories uh, of, of, uh, 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 of those kinds of difficulties. And, and the reality is we all know this, and it, we should be able to say it out loud. And if I'm honest with you, when I'm out in the world, not amongst church folk as I often am, the one point of contact and agreement, if I'm trying to find something with someone who, who is even the most ardent atheist, if I'm trying to find a place where I agree with them, where we can find some sort of common ground, the place where we can always meet is that the world is not as it ought to be. Every one of us recognizes that. And if you're desperately looking for some way to connect with someone with whom you have nothing in common, at least you can meet on the point where the world is not as it ought to be. We are not who and what we were made for. So how did we get here? Well, thankfully, the Bible gives us a story for that, to answer that question. And in Genesis chapter 3, the, the text says this, that God created everything. It was good. People were... Human beings were living in communion with each other, in communion with the land, in communion with God, in communion with the garden. Everything was as it ought to be. And then in the midst of this, now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say... You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Something that I want to pay attention to really, uh, that, that I didn't put, but I'm going to say it now. This whole thing starts with a misunderstanding and a, and, a, and, and a misappropriation of what God actually said. If we go back to Genesis 2, God says, don't eat from that tree which is in the middle of the garden. Okay, so then Satan starts to twist those words, and it's like, did God tell you not to eat from any of the trees? No, he didn't. He said, don't eat from one tree. And then Eve even twists it further, where she's like, no, he just said don't eat from this tree and don't touch it. He didn't say that. He didn't say don't touch it. So it is very important for us to make sure that we're using the words of God well. We've been blessed with this book which is filled with the words of God. But one of the major damages that we do to each other and what the damages the church has done to people for thousands of years is we get these words wrong. We don't pay attention to them. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because that happened right at the beginning. Okay? You must not touch it or you will die. You will not, cer not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, one of the things that's important to us about this story, and, the, and one of the things that we get wrong with a lot of biblical stories, is that they are intended to be funny. But we don't get the joke. 
for a lot of reasons. One, because there's just the difference of language and time and space. We're not in the same space. It's hard to get jokes uh, from thousands and thousands of years ago. But we've also treated this book as so precious, and which it is, but, we're, we're, but we have such a light hand with it that we don't understand that it's also the stories are trying to be funny and trying to be ridiculous. Because we see here that, first of all, why is this woman listening to a snake? Why, why, why is this conversation even happening? But it says you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, understand that. Wisdom, knowing a God and evil, good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of them both were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I want us to understand this, because this is a joke that we don't get and have not gotten for like 2,000 years for this simple reason. It's juxtaposing this idea like, oh, you're going to gain wisdom. You're going to gain knowledge of good and evil. You're going to gain wisdom. You're going to be so, you're going to be like God because you're going to know things, right? That's what he says. And what's the first thing that they do when they find out, when, when they gain all of this wisdom? They sew clothes together with fig leaves. And we don't get the joke because fig leaves are that big and shaped like that. There are better leaves with which to make clothing. Leaves that have far less holes in them. Leaves that are much more clothing shaped, right? We miss the joke because we don't understand that like fig leaves are the worst leaves with which to make clothing. So we have this wisdom. Oh, they're gaining so much wisdom. Oh, they're gaining so much. Oh, look at how, how brave they are in this rebellion. And then they're sewing fig leaves together, right? This is the size of a fig. It barely covers an apple, right? A palm, like a palm, you don't have a palm leaf? Those things are huge, you know? There's w things that are way better. Uh, and so wisdom and the knowledge of good and evil, and the first thing that you, they think of is making clothes out of leaves to cover up their private parts. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now, again, this is a ridiculous story. They're hiding from God in the trees of the garden. This is like when your toddler hides under a blanket in the middle of the living room, right? We've all had that happen, right? All of us as parents, are, we've seen this where they'll be like, oh, I'm going to hide, and they cover themselves in a blanket in the middle of the room. Of course you know where they are, right? There's not any wisdom that's being gained here, but you play along with the game, right? We've all done it. God is playing the game as well. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Of course he knows what they did, right? This is exactly the same as having a conversation with a toddler, right? We've seen the toddler with their face covered in cookie. Be like, did you eat the cookies? No. I didn't eat the cookies. Yes, you did. I can see the cookies all over your face, right? This is exactly 
all of this wisdom that they've gained from this, and all they're doing is behaving like toddlers, and we've missed this. And this is where sometimes in literature you get the huge, the, 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 this engagement with Adam and Eve, Eve as if they were like, oh, they're engaging in this act of rebellion by, by, by gaining all of this wisdom. No, they weren't. They were behaving like toddlers because they missed the reality that sometimes those who are in charge tell us not to do things because it's better and safer for us rather than just because they're trying to deprive us of something good, right? The reason why we tell our children don't eat all the cookies is because we know that if you eat all the cookies, all the cookies will make you sick and then you won't have cookies later on. So maybe God was saying, you're not going to have this information right now. You're going to get this knowledge later on when you're ready for it. But they got it when they weren't ready for it because they were trying to place themselves into the position of God. This is a childish mucking up of things. And then we see immediately a reaction that still exists to this day. That The man said, this woman that you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the snake deceived me and I ate. This still exists today because the first reaction when they're confronted with the reality of their actions is Adam goes like, this woman you put here, ultimately this is your fault. Really? Like, ultimately this is God's fault. You put a woman here and the fruit, I'm innocent of all charges, right? Like that's how Adam is behaving in this moment. And even the woman does it, the snake deceived me. You got deceived by a snake? Like, real? like, the, the, we're supposed to find Adam and Eve in this situation ridiculous. Because we're ridiculous. Because we choose this all the time. And we blame other people for our actions. And we say, well, you, I'm just the victim of everything that's happening around me. Rather than taking some level of responsibility for our own actions. There's childishness in this. This moment that we believe that we've gained wisdom and instead we're behaving like toddlers who've made a mess and we're more concerned about taking blame than actually cleaning up the mess. Have you ever seen this where your children have spilled a glass of milk on the table and all of a sudden there becomes this massive debate over who spilled the milk on the table before anyone grabs a cloth to clean up the milk on the table as it's dripping onto the floor? They're having an advanced, you know trial about whose fault it was that the cup was tipped over. That's not the way that adults handle things, right? The Bible, and the Bible is very clear that this is the moment when sin becomes encoded in our DNA. When the brokenness that was outside the world becomes a brokenness that is inside us. Because as much as Adam and Eve make the wrong choice and we inherited that, we make those wrong choices every day. And we see in the actions of this story something that we repeat and something that we emulate on a day-to-day -day basis. That we also choose what is desirable and what is, looks like it's good for food and maybe potentially desirable for gaining wisdom over what is good and what will last and what matters. And the Bible is quite clear that this is where sin enters into the picture. Now, the word sin is difficult for us to use because most of the time in our culture, and I've spoken about this before, most of the time when we hear the word sin, we think of something good but slightly bad for us, right? When we think of sin, we think of like something chocolatey and rich. Like this is a sinfully good cheesecake, 
you know? Or we think of something like mildly sexual and enjoyable that we're supposed to just push to the side. And that's how we think of sin. And anyone that's trying to say, like, you should avoid sin is trying to deprive you of things that are good and nice and kind of fun but a little bit off base. And I think that that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what sin is. And, and, and most, most, many of you will have seen me do this before, but I still can't find a better one, a better written explanation of what sin is. And this is from uh, a writer named Francis Spuford who talks about, he says that a better, the best way for us to understand sin is the human propensity to, to fudge things up. He didn't say fudge, he said a word that was much more impolite, but I don't feel appropriate to say in front of you. But he talks about how ultimately we all realize that we have within us this human propensity to fudge things up. And our employment with this realization often comes at one of the classic moments of adult failure. When a marriage ends, when a career stalls or crumbles, when a relationship fades away with a child seen only on Saturdays, when the supposedly recreational co cocaine habit turns out to be exercising veto powers over every other hope and dream. It need not be that dramatic, though. It can equally well be just the drifting into place of one more pleasant, indistinguishable little atom of wasted time, one more morning like all the others, which quietly discloses you to yourself. And you're lying in the bath and you notice that you're 39 and you don't have children and that the way that you are living bears scarcely any resemblance to what you think you've always wanted, yet you got here by choice, by a long series of choices for things which at any one moment temporarily outbid the things that you say you wanted most. And as the water cools and the light of Saturday morning in summer ripples heartlessly on the bathroom ceiling, you glimpse an unflattering vision of yourself as a being whose wants make no sense, don't harmonize, whose desires deep down are discordantly arranged so that you truly want to possess and you truly want not to at the very same time. You're equipped, you realize, for farce or even tragedy more than you are for happy endings. And, and the human propensity to fudge things up dawns on you. You have indeed fudged things up. Of course you have. You're human, and that's where we live. That's our normal experience. This is what sin and death looks like for most of us. For most of us, sin and death looks like the slow and tragic choosing of what is immediate over what is valuable. The slow and tragic choosing of what is easy over what is right. And what is good for food and pleasing to the eye and what is desirable for gaining wisdom over what is going to last and be valued to, valuable to us long term. We regularly make those choices. And that is what sin looks like for most of us. And they accumulate day after day and week after week and year after year to the point where we find ourselves wondering at this gap between who we are and who we know we ought to be and how could this gap ever be bridged again. We don't know how we got here, but yet here we are. And all of us feel like that by times. Paul talks about it in this way in Romans chapter 7. Equally brilliant exposition of what this looks like. He, Paul says, and this is, remember this is Paul at the end of his career. Romans was written towards the end of Paul's career.
career. Paul is as connected to the Holy Spirit as anyone in the history of human reality. And this is what he says of himself. In the present tense, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer myself who do it, but is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. No, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. This is Paul talking to himself in the present tense. That there's a disconnect and a gap between what he knows is right and what he wants to do in his heart and what he believes is going to be valuable now and for eternity and what he ends up doing on a day-to-day basis. There is a gap there. And he says, who will save me from this, from this wretched life? But what he does trust in is that Jesus meets us in this moment. But the reality is, if we're going to change as human beings, we need to get a hold of where we lost our way. If we're truly going to be transformed, we need to repent. And repenting involves understanding exactly where you are and understanding how far that is from where you ought to be. Has anyone ever gotten lost on the highway? Right? Has anyone ever had their GPS lead them way, like, I had an early stage GPS in our car one time when we had to drive to Montana like four years ago, and the computer wasn't very good at distinguishing between like what was road that had pavement on it and what people actually drove on and what was really only occupied by like sheep and cows and goats. And, and even then, you can't start going the right direction until you stop going the wrong direction. And you take stock of how far wrong you are and re-gauge into like, okay, where is my destination and how do I get there from here? And that is what this repentance involves. That, and we're equipped to do it because this is what Paul says in the very next chapter. Because he's, even though he talks about that in the present tense, that he's struggling with this reality, with this thing that's in him that longs for self-destruction, that is bent towards wasting time, that is bent towards turning against other people, turning against what God has created him to be. He says this, if Christ is in you, though even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. That the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit that lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. We have an obligation. This is fascinating. Because Paul is saying you've got... The, the, the necessary ingredients to be who and what God has called you to be. The Holy Spirit is living in you if you are following Jesus. But now you have an obligation to live according to that. So it's not just enough to be like, okay, I've got this thing. Now we have an obligation to, uh, to align our lives with that. And that's where we start to talk about these habits. That's where we talk, start to talk about 
about making good choices with our time and with our, with our bodies and with our food and with our finances, where we, where we don't live according to what is temporary and what is desirable to the eye and what looks good for food and maybe short-term desirous for gaining wisdom, but that we align our lives with what we know is going to be good and valuable for us long-term and eternally. Can we live our lives in light of eternity, eternity rather than what is pleasurable for us in the short term? And that is why we develop these habits for godliness, because we have an obligation to live according to the Spirit. Because it's when we live according to the Spirit that other people begin to see Christ at work in us. And when they see Christ at work in us, they begin to have their lives transformed as well because they begin to see how far they've gone, but not in a way that makes them feel small and inefficient and terrible and, and weak and paralyzed, but is empowering because it says, I can do that too. You did it, I can do it too. So we do this. We work towards spiritual wholeness, physical wholeness, vocational wholeness, relational wholeness, financial wholeness, trusting that all of that is going to work together to make us who God has called us to be. But we have lost our way. And I want to tell you that you've lost your way in a way that diminishes you or makes you feel stuck. I hope that that's not what you've left with. And I hope that you don't see the human propensity to fudge things up, that you don't see the sin that lives within you as the final word. Because what we are fundamentally committed to as people of Jesus is that death does not have the final word, but rather life does. And that what we have been called to is a daily denial of that thing in us that is bent towards self-destruction. A daily denial of that thing in us that says you ought to be God rather than God being God and you being creation. We work towards that and we need to work to, and, and as much as that is a one big choice, it's an, it's an everyday tiny little choice as well an everyday tiny little choice of saying this is who God has called me to be and I'm going to live in light of that and allowing that spirit that is in you to be empowered to grow and move forward in that. Let's pray together. God. We ask that you help us to be people who are confident enough in your love for us that we are able to say that we have lost our way. That we don't shrink back from that reality. That we don't say that we have lost our way and that sin lives in us in a way that is, that is defeated or in a way that is paralyzing or in a way that excuses all of our behaviors and actions, but as a way of recognizing who we are. But we also ask that that, that, that because you have not made sin the final word in our lives, that we not allow sin to be the final word in our lives, but that we trust you and allow your Holy Spirit to take root in who we are and that we start to live as you have called and created us to live, that we begin to reject the tendency that we have to, 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 to judge others and diminish others to hold ourselves up, and rather we begin to live in communion with others, that we reject that that tendency that we have to, 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 to try and cut off pieces of ourselves in order to be better and more uh, in order to fit an image of that we have in ourselves of who we are, and re but rather begin to accept who we are in light of your love for us, that we engage in habits that give life rather than death. 
And we ask that you would show us how to do that in, in all of the big and small ways on a day-to-day -day basis that, that, that so govern what we do. We ask that we, you would keep this in mind for us as we go forward. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. As we come to this table, the message that this table brings us at this moment is quite clear. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we had sin in us, while we have sin in us, God did not hold himself separate. God did not hold himself aloof from us. God did not leave us without any sort of help or ability to move forward in what he has called us to, but rather he gave himself for us. And on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. This is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins, which gives us the opportunity to start new, to be new, to, to, to do things differently now and for eternity. And that doesn't happen when we get all of our stuff right. That doesn't happen when we've put together 30, 60 days of making all the good decisions. That happens now. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the midst of our failings, Christ meets us. So I would ask you to take a moment to prepare your hearts and your minds to recognize where you are right now. And at the same time, recognize where God has called and equipped you to be. And ask that the Holy Spirit show you how you can make those changes in your life. So let's take a few moments in prayer together.